Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Thanks for showing up tonight on the rainy evening. Uh, this is my fourth novel, and in many ways the most difficult of all, even though the language was the simplest. Um, I think that I was haunted by this book uh, since childhood, in a way. Haunted by the voice in this book since childhood. And finally, circumstances were right, and I could make a book out of it. Uh, it's about... Uh, a middle-aged autistic man who decides under the various uh, pressures of the arrival of a hostile roommate and um, the death of his parents to escape his long-term facility and try to walk home to a home that no longer exists, a childhood home that no longer exists. In the section that I'm going to read, um, he is uh, waking up the day after his malicious new roommate tried to give him what he calls volts. Volts are a kind of rage that becomes nearly like an epileptic attack. He he whites out. He just sees white and he loses control of himself. So, um, yeah, I guess that's really all you need to know. The morning after Tommy Dune tried to give me volts, I woke up and took my pills like I always do. Every day I take Risperdal to make me calm, Lipitor to make me healthy, Paxil to make me happy, Lunesta at night to make me sleep, fish oil to soften my stool, and a baby aspirin for my heart. They come in a bubble-packed roll, neatly arranged. The roll has the time and date marked on it in sections, so I know just where to tear off the special piece containing all the meds for that part of the day. The pills keep me always a little bit tired, but it's important that I take them, because if not, they might call a Dr. Strong. Paging Dr. Strong, they say over the PA system, when a villager is about to throw a tantrum and needs to be restrained by staff. Dr. Strong on the double, they say. I filled a big glass with warm water and took the pills in a single swallow. Then because it was a Sunday morning and I had a period of extended free time ahead of me, I sat and did what I'd been doing for several days now. I thought about the stick, stock, stalk, stork. The stick was a pointed stick that belonged to Mr. Derezowitz, the custodian at Peyton. He used it to spear through paper lying on the paths and grass. As I worked alongside him on lawn crew on certain afternoons, I was sure that if I had the stick and didn't have to interrupt my walking to bend down, but could simply whisk stuff off the ground and into a bag I had on my shoulder just like him, I'd be a person already on his way out of Peyton and maybe maybe one day live alone and even drive a car. So I studied this stick that was a pure pole with a point on it. Later that same afternoon, when free time was over and everyone was supposed to attend a talent show in the main hall, I walked across the empty campus to the woodworking workshop. 
There I found an old broomstick in a pile of wood. I used the special jigsaw with the skinny blade and the high humped back like a man praying, and I cut the end off. Then I sawed the flat head of a nail off too, but quietly, and I gently hammered the nail into the stick and then filed the nail sharp again where it was flat from being hammered. This was a beautiful trash-spearing machine, and I was happy at myself, and I whistled as I cleaned up. When I was done, I put the stick behind some bushes outside and went on to the talent show. Except it turned out that it wasn't a talent show, but a sing-along. A sing-along is held usually in the main hall whenever we want to greet new staff. The problem was that when I entered the main hall that evening and I saw who the new staff was, I immediately felt sick. He was seated at the center of a crowd of people in the main hall, and they had just started the welcome song. It's done to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and it goes like this. Peyton living flies on high, touch the earth and touch the sky, walking tall and feeling joy in the hearts of girls and boys. And today we welcome a new staff who will help us out to laugh. Then everyone applauds, cheering like it's the best, funniest thing they've ever heard. But usually during these songs, I'm only mouthing the words because my mind is focused instead on the soda machine in the nearby alcove that is filled with clustering cool cans of Mountain Dew and Sprite and root beer. Sometimes after events, Ray Keen will let me have one. The new staff stood up. He had hair that was long in the back and short in the front. He had a mustache that drooped on either side like a picture of a Civil War general in a magazine. He waited until the singing one was done, and then he said, uh, This is the part where I talk a little, right? Okay, name's Mike Hinton, and I'm from right down the road in Gatesboro. Short version is high school, and then what you call a non-starter phase, community college. Next up, we got military service, which was two tours in Iraq, 21st Cavalry, 2nd Battalion. Hardest thing I've ever done this life, and maybe the next one too, and pulled a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star doing it. Anyway, after my service is over, I come back home thinking I'm done with that. I'm like, okay, Lord, where do I go from here? People were nodding. So I began taking special ed classes, Mike said, which opened my eyes. Yes, sir, it did, but... Pretty soon, I got to feeling like I wanted to actually be doing something in the world rather than reading about it in a book. Friends, I wanted to be getting my feet wet and my hands dirty. He looked around and made a slow, chewing motion like he was eating a piece of seriousness. Bottom line, he said, it's really important for me to be here in this community of beautiful people making a difference. And thank you for your faith in hiring me. He smiled. Ta-da, the end. People applauded as Mike Hinton looked slowly around the room, trying to fork his eyes individually into the faces of people in the crowd. But when he got to me, instantly the bad feeling deepened in my gut, like on the roller coaster when it shoots upward so fast it leaves your stomach still hanging at the bottom. Underneath his mustache, he was wearing my father's same yellow teeth and eyes, and I started whimpering, unable to stop the bad remembering. My dad was dead, but he was back again as a speaking person looking out of someone else's face. My whimpering grew louder and soon became an uncontrollable bawling in my mouth. Several of the staff started moving towards me, but the face of Mike Hinton was shining at me like from a circle of light in the middle of the room.
He looked like he knew exactly what I was thinking and he was angry about it. He looked like I just kicked dirt onto the white cake of his life. Ray Keen took me gently by the arm and out of the room and led me back to my cottage. Todd, shush now, she said. You know how you get with new men's staff and how you were with Roy and LeBron. But you're going to love Mike, honey. You really are. I've talked to him and our man is one of the good guys, like you. She made me brush my teeth and wash my face while she stood in the door of the bathroom of my house, watching Afterwards, she came close and bent over me, and the warmth of the air around her body went into me in a calming way as she hugged me good night. I got into bed and turned on the bedside radio. The stripe of numbers glowed. Unchained melody by the Righteous Brothers was playing. I can remember every song I've ever heard. I can remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I first heard it. Mama was a piano teacher, and I'd spent a million hours sitting listening as she moved her hands over the keyboard, and notes flew into the air and then gradually filled me up. Good night, sugar, Ray Keen said softly and shut the door. It was early to go to bed, but staff made us do it if they thought we were getting nervous. Pre-sleep, they called it. I did pre-sleep while thinking that the way my parents died had nothing to do with how a switch on a wall threw light across a room, but that it was still a kind of magic. It was a magic how they walked out of their clothes and bodies and simply disappeared. It was a magic how everything they owned suddenly lost its forward motion like a sailboat when the wind stops. My dad was gone. I'd seen the coffin. It was lowered on a kind of cloth band into the hole. Dirt fell with a rattle. Unchained melody ended, and To Sir With Love began. Daddy wasn't coming back ever, but I was nervous anyway. I knew that in one of the cottages nearby, Mike was sitting wearing my father's expression on his face and making up something specially bad just for me. I knew he was. I was sure of it. I started whimpering again and stayed there lying in my bed until everyone had gone to sleep. Then I put my clothes back on and went outside. I walked across the dark campus till I found the stick again in the bushes, and I held it in my hand. I couldn't bear to push my mind back against anyone, but this wasn't my mind. It was a sharp stick that could fly through the air. I had heard where Mike lived, and I carried the stick to the bushes right near his cottage. Then I stayed there for a while, bent low over it, rocking and making the dog noise in my chest like my dad, with my eyes shut. Everybody thinks they know what's wrong with me, but they don't. They think I'm autistic, but they don't exactly know what that means either. A doctor named Eugene Bloiler made up the word autism in 1911, though it didn't get used on anybody until a long time later. The last name of Bloiler sounds like it might belong to a fat man who's bursting out of his clothes with a pop. But actually, he was a Swiss doctor with a mustache who was good with words because he also made up the one schizophrenia. After Eugene Bloiler, no one thought about autism for a while because of being distracted by world wars. But then starting in the 1940s, one person after another began explaining that they knew what autism was and you should let them tell you. Not only do I sometimes read the paper, I also read the Encyclopedia Britannica, too. No one knows that either, even though I have it under my bed. My mama first brought me the Encyclopedia when I was 12 years old. 
I just arrived at the Clovis Center, and she asked the director there to make a special exception, and he said yes, and so have all the other directors since. She used to bring me the Britannica yearbooks each year, too, until she died, Mama. Most people think the encyclopedia is there to make me happy like a piece of blanket from childhood, but I actually read it lots because the encyclopedia has a voice that belongs to a man sitting in a room at a table who wants to talk calmly about every single thing in the world, and it calms me to hear that. It calms me how he never gets angry or sick or makes the dog growl in his chest. It calms me that he only waits patiently for you to turn to the page so he can start talking again. I told Ray Keen about him, and she laughed and said she was going to call the Britannica Mr. B. Now, whenever I ask her a question she doesn't know the answer to, she says, why don't you ask Mr. B? When I asked him, Mr. B said that the explaining about autism has gone on for a while and continued till today, and still no one knows exactly what it is. He said this is true, even though scientists are always having all sorts of what he calls groundbreaking discoveries about autism. He says they're doing a lot of tying of autism to things in the environment when they're not doing groundbreaking. Meanwhile, there are the skulls. I like thinking about the skulls. They're kept in museums in places like Germany and France, and they're shiny because they've been painted with varnish by museum people to keep them from rotting in air, which is called oxidation. The skulls are from a period of long ago known as the Neolithic Mr. B says that this was when groups of people first began having fun together 8,000 years ago. He says they played string instruments, baked bread, and kept pets. He says they did things with their hair to look good for each other. The skulls have little holes cut in them. These holes are often square. Sometimes the cuts are perfect like the lines of a tic-tac-toe. They were probably made with a curved knife. Also, the holes have bone growth around them, which means the surgery was done on people who were still alive. The question is, why? Why'd they do it? Who was the first person who said, I know, I'll feel better when I cut a hole in my head? No one knows the answer for sure, but Mr. B says that it's probably the first example ever in the world of someone being operated on by someone else to let the crazy out. Thank you. So if you have any questions, please have that. Yes. Your opening sentence about been wanting to give voice to this for a long time. Yes. Uh, I, want, I want to hear about that. <laughs> the question was um, uh, about the opening sense about wanting to give voice to this. Uh, well, I um, just to cut to the autobiographical chase, I grew up with an older autistic brother in the... Uh, diagnostic dark ages of autism in the 1960s and uh, he basically um, like disabled child tends to do uh, became the focal point of the family and um, everybody sort of orbited around him and I knew that one of the ways I could defend myself against a family that I understood even as a little boy were nuts uh, was to write about it and uh, it was a way of grounding myself because the, I understood that my family was not like the families in the, uh, of the other houses around us, or the houses of my friends. They were uh, different, and uh, they had a, a child at home who was violent and very unhappy to be on the planet and um, out of control. And my mother tried to keep him home as long as she could, 
because he was her firstborn. She was deeply attached to him. And there were not all the protocols that are in place today for a severely autistic child. People really didn't know what to do. You know, so I had that voice in me really from the get go. And um, uh, it eventually found its way uh, into a book. Right. Right. Well, that's actually a real. That's actually a real phrase. Well, yeah, Functional disconnection syndrome. That's um, uh, one of the, the leading theories of autism is that uh, the two hemispheres of the brain grow at different uh, speeds in childhood for autistics, and because of that, there's an unnatural amount of communication between the two hemispheres. I mean, autism. A lot of people think of as a kind of a perceptual overload. And functional disconnection syndrome is an attempt to explain that. And in fact, certain doctors say that you can actually see the foreheads of autistic children uh, swollen in a, in a peculiar characteristic way. So from this, you know, it, it, disparity of the, of the frontal lobes. Any, right, exactly. <laughs> Anybody else? Any other questions? Yeah. Right. You have these different writing styles where a lot of your other novels are like psychological. I mean, they all work with the psyche, but this is really different. Like, do you have what is my question? Well, <laughs> how, how could how could one person be so schizophrenic successfully? Yeah. No, I, I already know the answer. To that. <laughs> well. I uh, I wrote for people who don't know I, I wrote um, a, a, my first novel actually dealt with some of these same issues but from the point of view of a twelve year old child growing up with an autistic brother and that book and the two books that followed were full on literary novels I I used as many resources of style and uh, um, literary uh, skill as I could. This book, I decided to try something different. And so I deliberately set about subverting my own literary tendencies uh, by writing a book that had very short sentences, very little simile and metaphor in it, uh, very few commas, and uh, exposed me as a writer in a way. You know, it it made me vulnerable. And I I decided I wanted to do that. I wanted to try something different, really different, and push myself uh, into a place where I was working without a net and... um, and uncomfortable you know this was a very very exhausting book to write to live in this person's head was very hard and also to find the place in the language um that felt strange enough to carry the strangeness of his his perception was very tricky to do it took a lot uh, of work um more than it seems which is fine with me that's the way it should be you know but i wanted to um push myself somewhere new yeah. He's in an institution in central New Jersey where he's been for many, many years. If people are interested in knowing more about any of this, um, this Sunday in the New York Times, I have a, an editorial coming out about um, adult autism because it's in the op-ed or Sunday review section. Um, aut- adult autism is uh, a, an island nation in America that's essentially unknown. Um, the boom in childhood autism over the last 25 years, which has come about for a variety of reasons that are probably not worth getting into right now, has eclipsed everything else. People have forgotten that there, in fact, exists a huge population 
of people like my brother who are in their 50s and 60s um, and who have no one to speak for them, no one to bear witness for them, and uh, about whom almost nothing is known. Almost nothing. It's astonishing. I mean, you can even talk to experts in the field to say we have no field research. We have no field data on adult autistic people. Um, so, you know, inadvertently, my, my intent was to do something that was extremely personal and, and, and involved my own history. But inadvertently, I ended up shedding light uh, on a population that is really underrepresented in the world. And, um, yeah, he's in Central New Jersey. And he's doing fine. He's... Uh, He's a enormous pain in the butt. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm his guardian after my parents passed. I became his guardian, which is, if anyone has done that, it's a pretty uh, complicated thing. It involves a lot of bureaucratic work, a lot of paperwork. So, yeah, yes. Thank you. Thank you. But they're working on that. That's that's the novelist perennial dream, you know, that it gets bought for the movies because that's where the money is. But um, it's interesting, you know, um, when you really put yourself into a book, at a certain point, the book begins to pull you along, and the writing gets very easy to do. And um, the last fifty pages of the book which has a kind of a crescendo feeling as you read it, I think, came to me absolutely like I was scribbling a laundry list. It was so easy because I had spent the time to get there and I knew what the sound of the sentences was and the voice and the perceptual universe. And I just, it just came, came to me. So uh, that end was a real gift. But every book that you really put yourself into pays you back in that way. Somewhere along the way, it really, it really pays you back. Just one last note about process. I originally wrote this book in the second person. You, 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 um, because it was a way to find the strangeness in the, in the perception of the narrator. The you form, the second person, leaves it unclear whether the, the, the writer is addressing himself or the audience. And into that ambiguity uh, it comes a lot of odd perceptual uh, uh, horsepower. And I use that to kind of map his, his world uh, and find the strangest in his world. And then I transitioned uh, back into the first person because it's, it's too hard on a reader most, most of the time to read a whole book in the second person. Um, okay. Yeah. No, he's... He, uh, my uh, actual brother is not uh, nearly high-functioning enough to uh, read a book like this. No, he... He knows about it. I remember the actual conversation where I said, Josh, uh, I've written uh, a book and you're narrating it. And there was a pause on the phone. He said, how's the weather in New York? Literally. So, you know, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. The people at his institution are interested um, because they uh, want to use whatever attention uh, I get to reflect on them, which is fine. Uh, you know, there, uh, I say this in the, in the piece that's coming out. The direct care staff who work at these places are the unsung heroes of the universe. They're underpaid, and they provide so much warmth and care uh, for these people. And it's, it's, a, it's a very, very sad situation because their, their uh, uh, salary is so low that the turnover is extremely high. And someone like my brother, who's so beset by anxiety and psychosis and is heavily medicated, he 
fights his way through to a stable relationship with one of these people, and then they go away. You know, and it's just it's very damaging to him. But it's just nothing that can be done about. It. That's the way it is right now. So, yeah. Uh, myself, um, I actually tried a little bit in New York City when I moved there a few years ago um, to, to get involved in doing that. But I never have. But, you know, I kind of grew up in these therapeutic communities in a sense because we went to them constantly when I was a boy to visit my brother. So, I mean, I, I'm, I certainly spent a lot of time around the disabled. But no, I uh, Joshua is probably named for – wasn't there a book about a, a boy named Joshua? I think so. Uh no, uh, my brother for many years was in uh, the uh, Camp Hill movement schools. Rudolf Steiner, famed for the Waldorf schools, also has a international movement for the development of the disabled called the Camp Hill movement. And my brother was in those for a long, long time. But uh, no, I haven't had any really direct, uh, not much. I mean, I've had a lot of direct experience, but not working, you know. Right, right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because despite the fact that there's a very simple voice narrating the tale, you have to keep the reader interested. And, and the, 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 the machinery of narration has to be tuned just so. And that's where the real work goes into, you know. And thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.